Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. Hello and happy MLK Day, everyone. I sound cheerful because I really love this holiday. To me, it represents everything good and beautiful and worth fighting for, and I just wallow in all the coming together and the lifting up of justice and equality and community, and I'm here for all of it. Cannot wait to get out there and celebrate. So today is the perfect day for me to share my interview with the Executive Director of El Centro de la Raza, Estela Ortega. El Centro was founded here in Seattle in 1972 and is housed in the former Beacon Hill Elementary. It came into being as a result of an occupation of the empty school led by Estela's late husband, Roberto Maestas, a teacher and activist who was a member of the history-making multiracial group of friends known as the Gang of Four. I've talked about the Gang of Four in a previous episode, but for those who don't know, the other three members were the late Bernie White Bear, a member of the Colville tribe, the late Bob Santos, who was Filipino, and Larry Gossett, who is African-American and who is currently the longest-serving member of the King County Council. You can learn more about the Gang of Four and the founding of El Centro, in fact, in part one of my interview with Larry Gossett, or you can read the book Gang of Four, which was co-written by Bob Santos and uh, Gary Iwamoto. So I found it at the um, Northwest African-American Museum, but I'm pretty sure it's also at the library. So anyway, Estella was a co-founder of El Centro and has been an active part of the organization's operations since its inception. El Centro is a beautiful and special place that has been providing comprehensive services, services like food assistance, childcare. They have a wonderful childcare and preschool training uh, and English instruction for the Latino and Chicano communities and really anyone else who needs them for over 45 years. Everything about El Centro, including its name, embodies the value of community. But I wanted to talk to Estella specifically about El Centro's recent success building affordable housing in a city that is rapidly becoming the exclusive domain of the rich. The way I see it, we can't build inclusive, interdependent communities without quality housing that is affordable to people of all income levels. But the vast, vast majority of housing that is being built in Seattle right now is market rate which translates to affordable to a very small sliver of the population. Thanks to Estella's uncompromising vision and incredible stamina and resolve, which you will learn more about in the interview, and to El Centro's great good fortune to be located directly across the street from where the Beacon Hill light rail station ended up being built. El Centro was able to develop their own property, which is the land that surrounded the school, and build 112 units of truly affordable housing in a prime location that would otherwise have been out of reach for working people. And it's not just housing, the development isn't just housing. There's retail space and a beautiful plaza that is open to all and which functions as a gathering place for the entire neighborhood. I hope more organizations will be able to replicate El Centro's success. Housing by the people, for the people. I interviewed Estela at El Centro. So in the background, you'll be able to hear the hustle and bustle of a busy organization all around us. I love that. Beloved Community in Action. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mrs. Estella Ortega. Thank you for agreeing to be interviewed. Thank you. Uh, and I will just uh, start with 
my question I ask everybody, what does community mean to you? You know, I mean, I think concretely when people think of community, you think of a group, you know, a neighborhood or um, groups of people coming together to create a better life, whether it's around, you know, education, housing, health care. That's the upshot. But I think that community gets gets created in many different forms, you know, whether you're, you know, going to school, you're on campus, whether you're in, you know, in a work world, you're working for um, uh, better working conditions, or you're in a neighborhood. Again, I think the crucial part is people coming together and agreeing upon something that they want to work on to change, to make life better for those who are impacted by it. I like to ask that to set some context and also just to get us warmed up for the conversation we're going to have. Uh, before we get to the meat of our discussion, though, I would really like for you, uh, if you don't mind, to just give us a little bit of background about who you are and the work you do. Okay. I am the executive director at El Centro de la Raza, and I'm also one of the co-founders of the organization, which means that I've been here um, for a good 45 years. Just quickly, a, a brief history about El Centro de la Raza also. So it started with the peaceful occupation in October of 1972, and Roberto Maestas who today we refer to as our lead community organizer, was directing in English as a second language program. And the funds were basically cut. People, you know, what are we going to do? And the particular English as a second language program had become sort of a crisis center also where people were coming to look for, you know, work, jobs, whatever that they needed help on. So Roberto knew about this building and that it had been abandoned. Um, the school district no longer had a use for it. And in fact, Dan Evans, who was the governor at the time, made a broad statement and said that people should make use of these kind of buildings. And so people, Roberto felt that was his cue. But you know, where sort of did the idea of an occupation of a building come from. And we attribute that to the fact that Roberto knew about the occupation that had happened in Alcatraz Mm -hmm. um, with Native Americans, um, knew about that, and then participated in the occupation of Fort Lawton, which later became United Indians of All Tribes. And so he had those lessons there. And then students around the country in protesting the war in Vietnam were also occupying, you know, uh, president's offices and so forth. Um, so that's that's where we feel sort of his the idea came from. Okay. So the impetus for the occupation were English as a second language students. They were ordinary individuals. They weren't activists. They were again ordinary people who were um, who had their consciousness raised, and how their consciousness was raised was through the English as a Second Language program because Roberto had been a school teacher at Franklin High School. And so he, the method that he used to have the students learn English was obviously in a classroom setting also, but taking them out into the community to practice their English. He took them to Indian reservations so that they would um, learn about the fishing rights struggle that was also raging at that time, uh, took them to the international district to get to know the community there and also learn about how they were going to be displaced 
um, by uh, the construction of the King Dome there. And then to the African-American community, the English as a student, uh, language students, also were supportive when African-Americans closed down construction sites because they were protesting the fact that African-Americans weren't getting those good union jobs. That again raised the consciousness where when they talked about what are we going to do and this idea of occupying this building, people understood it and said, you know, yes, we want to be, we want to be a part of that and, and lead that. So they occupied the building, the students, and had, had an immense amount of support from communities of color, the anti-war movement, and, um, and the faith community. So the occupation lasted for about three months. City Council turned it over for a um, dollar a year. And, you know, that's when the real hard work began in terms of trying to create and build an organization. So it came from wanting the building for the ESL or did was it always envisioned as a community? It was, it was envisioned that obviously they would have the ESL program, but also they would have many community services and it would be a place for groups to have meetings who didn't, you know, have, um, who were your emerging communities in some ways. So today we have 49 different programs in the areas of uh, children and youth, um, emergency and human services, economic development, skill building programs, housing. So everything that we do, obviously we target the Latino community, but our doors are open from um, anybody who needs a ser- who needs a service or needs some type of assistance mm-hmm. or needs support. That is our commitment to racial unity because we acknowledge that we feel that we will always owe a debt in particular to communities of color because if we did not have that support during the beginning, uh, the building would not have been turned over to us because at that time in 1972, there were only about 25,000 Chicano Mexicanos living in the area with no political clout. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is our commitment because we wouldn't be here today And the other thing is that it's morally right. I mean, in terms of people who need assistance, and if we can assist in that way, then we will. So your organization was founded by broad-based community support and connection. Mm -hmm. And and that was a lesson you you learned early that that was critical to success and survival. Absolutely. mm -hmm. We um, learned that. And, of course, those lessons came before even the founding of El Centro de la Raza in terms of the relationships that were created with the four amigos, you know, in terms of Larry, um, Larry Gossett, Bernie White, the late Bernie White Bear and the late um, Bob Santos. So we learned that early on in in terms of supporting each other's struggles. Well, and it's interesting too, in a place like Seattle, even beyond the moral argument, there's an existential argument because it's such a predominantly white city that if communities of color don't unite, you just have these small pockets of people, like you said, who don't have enough political power. Right. You know, we were, we're a publishing, uh, we're working on a book of the history of El Centro. Mm-hmm. 
the uh, author of, of the book is uh, lives in Nebraska. And what really resonates with him as he's, you know, hearing our stories and, you know, putting it down on paper, he said, here in Omaha, you know, the Latinos are over here, the Blacks over here, the Indians, and and that they're not united and that they don't work together. And whereas here in, in Seattle, it's been sort of the lifeblood, if you will, of our movement for social justice way before, like I said, before El Centro de la Raza was mm-hmm. was founded. So, yes. Okay. You have been, as you said, doing this work for over 45 years, or roughly 45 years. And I imagine it can be challenging. There are a lot of setbacks. It's difficult. What, what keeps you motivated? What calls you to continue to do this work? Well, I think it goes back to you know, where I came from. And, you know, you, you always hear the statement, you must remember where you came from. Mm-hmm. And I grew up extremely poor in Texas. And sometimes I'll say that it was embarrassingly poor because, you know, rat infested, roaches, um, you know, my, my brothers ended up with childhood, you know, diseases. So, and then living in a small town in Texas, experiencing you know, the racism that comes comes with that and knowing that you're being treated differently, but you don't, you know, as a child, you don't understand, you know, and I can recall back to when I was probably around, you know, seven years old that I remember being treated differently and knowing that it was different than in years later realizing that was racism that I was experiencing. So I think that experience has always stayed with me. And then obviously then coming to a place like El Centro de la Raza, I was living in Houston, Texas, and I had met Roberto Maestas and others in September of 1972 at a national conference for the forming of an alternative political party for the for Chicanos, because that's what we called ourselves back in the day. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I met Roberto and, of course, um, stayed in touch. And he let me know that an occupation was happening to come and visit. And, you know, in, in Houston, you know, my political consciousness, I was involved in, you know, study groups around what was happening in the third world in terms of the struggles, the uh, liberation struggles of in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America. And so those also made uh, an impression upon me that I learned that, you know, one has to struggle to make change. So when I came to visit El Centro, the occupation of El Centro de la Raza, I saw that there was all types of people involved and people of different ages and that what was happening here was being put into practice of creating community. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that, you know, we talked about in, you know, when I was till one o'clock in the morning, you know, in the coffee shops of, of Houston <laughs> with, uh, you know, other students. So it, when Larry and Roberto and others are like, say, why don't you come back and help us? You know, we need help. Okay, 
Was an opportunity have, to test out. Yeah, I didn't have any reason to, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was working in insurance and real estate, and I was on my way mm-hmm. to be, you know, your sort of, I was your pre-yuppie of the time, just in where I was at. And so I said, go back, um, sell my car, you know, my, my, I lived in an apartment in Houston and, um, you know, made the decision to come here. Obviously, it was a life-changing event, not just because that I made the move, that I was part of an occupation and helping create community, but also as an individual who struggles. You struggle with internalized racist oppression when you live in a society that sees you less than. And, you know, the sexism in, in 1972 in the world of work, sexism is rampant. Yeah. So it just felt like that I was going to be free here, you know, that I was going to be free to be to be myself and to develop, you know, and the Nicaraguans would, um, the Nicaraguan revolution, which El Centro de la Raza um, had the opportunity to get to know many people from Nicaragua, that they was they would tell us is that when you're involved in social justice work, when you're involved in community and struggling to to build community is that you're tested with, you know, what are your values and how do you put them into practice Mm -hmm. and um, how then you evolve into becoming the person that you were intended to be. So now I want to talk to you about the main reason I really wanted to interview you, which is housing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously housing is you know, places for people to live is critical to have to building a, you know, community and, you know, a physical community. And as we both know, Seattle's experiencing a huge housing crisis and it's affecting everyone, but especially low-income people and people of color. So I want to talk to you about the housing that El Centro has opened. And to start with, just can you tell me the basics? How many units and who are they for and that kind of stuff? Sure. Um... The housing is called Plaza Roberto Maestas, obviously named um, for Roberto Maestas. It has 112 units of affordable housing. There are one and two and three bedroom units, really focusing on, on family mm-hmm. units. It um, is for people who earn anywhere from 30 to 60% of area medium income. And so what that would mean for a family of four is that if you're earning, you know, as low as $24,000 a year to $55,000 a year for a family of four, you could live here. And so that is that, you know, the 30% being at the 24,000 mark to the 55 being at about the 60, 60%. It is a, um, all together, you know, with all, well, just, let me just focus on the housing part of it. It was a $45 million project, which is a tax credit program also. It took seven and a half years of planning mm-hmm. because there was zoning, uh, a zoning change, and that usually takes a long time. When the light rail, was it associated with the light rail station? Yes, because the light rail was going to be right across the street. And Seattle had not had not planned for Beacon Hill to be a light rail stop. Oh, okay. That it was just going to go underground and it wasn't going to stop. And so the work about, you know, what a neighborhood wanted to see on light rail had not happened. And when it was decided that there was going to be a light rail 
el centro, um, the city then, you know, wanted to organize those communities that were going to be impacted. What do you want to see there? Do you want housing, businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And we um, approached the city of Seattle and saying, you know, obviously we have, you know, an acre of land that faces the transit station. And we know that there needs to be some type of development there. And will you put our one acre of land in the mix of your process so that we can get community input on what people would like to see there? And the community was... This was you being proactive yes, and, and yes. understanding this was going to happen and wanting to take advantage. Right. Okay. And that we knew that we, we were going to need community input in that. Okay. So the community was just elated that we were going to be open in that way because we had had our run-ins with the neighborhood over the years because um, the neighborhood had become gentrified. Mm -hmm. And in 1997, in fact, there was a group of neighbors who were white who wanted to try to buy El Centro de la Raza from the city of Seattle because we were only leasing the place and we were leasing the building based on Native American philosophy that that no one should really own the land that it's for all of us mm -hmm. and so that was our that was our philosophy around that but then when it came to that we saw this organized group of people who had come into the neighborhood and wanted didn't to share it. that philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't share that. And we said, okay, it's time to buy it now okay. for the good of all. You know, we can't let it just So go. what did they want to buy it for? The they neighbors? wanted to make it into sort of a community development corporation, kind of the things that we're doing today. But just with a different leadership. Exactly. Okay. So mm -hmm. um, so we had had that run in, you know, the the city had brought in federal mediators to mediate between El Centro de la Raza oh, wow. and our, our the rest of, of the, and it was the white community, mm -hmm. you know, that was here. So anyway, the fact that we openly said we want community input, they were happy. And so we knew that we had to be organized. And what that meant is that we were not going to leave it up to chance that the community could come up, this these people could come up with who knows what kind of ideas. <laughs> and so we organized also because we wanted housing there. We wanted businesses, you know, we wanted to, that's all we knew, you know, when sort of first start off. And then as we, you know, organized our community to participate in, um, the community planning process around what uh, Beacon Hill was going to have. You know, the other ideas of expanding our early childhood development center, having micro businesses, mm -hmm. um, offices there, retail all sort of emerged. And so what it turned out is what those ideas came up from the community, but those ideas also came as a result of us doing our community organizing. Because in that particular process, these, the city had hired what they refer to as trusted advocates and the trusted advocates were in particular to bring communities of color into the fold of the discussion and we said that's fine and we know who you've hired and we like that person but we're not giving up our community organizing mm -hmm. to just one individual right. we're going to do to our own organizing us. also yeah. and i that's a key lesson mm -hmm. is that when the powers that be bring in somebody to do the organizing for you you fine but we're going to do our own also hmm. so again everything that's there is um what we what we wanted 
as a part um, of the development. Well, what's interesting to me about this is that what you ended up with was quite similar to what happens in neighborhoods that are being gentrified all over the city. More housing, sort of change in zoning, housing, and businesses. The difference is this is available to people of lower incomes as opposed to it being high, high rent. And what I'm noticing, a lot of times you have people who fear displacement aligning with sort of wealthy property owners against you know new apartments and these kinds of developments because the new apartments are never for the people who are being displaced. What I find so inspiring about this is that we got some development around a light rail station, but it's for people, for everyday working people, as opposed to only the wealthiest of the wealthy. Absolutely. And we, when people realized that we were going to develop the property, that was our intention, we had all type of developers coming to us. Mm -hmm. But they were market rate developers. They were developers who were going to develop studio and one-bedroom apartments. And so that wasn't for our population. Mm -hmm. And we said, well... You know, you really don't know who we are, and, and that's not going to work for us. And so our commitment was to provide housing for low-income people. And we were fortunate as a, communi a community-based organization, a community, if you will, that is concerned about the needs of its community. And that's why we ended up, we were true to our mission of developing housing for those. We had already... Um, experienced the fact that Latinos were being pushed out of the city because, you know, that was what, 2007, 2000, well, maybe around 2004, mm -hmm. we began the work. We had a home ownership program and we tried to, if you will, develop the Latino community here on Beacon Hill by trying to get them to buy houses, but it was already at that time even unaffordable for people to live. And so, with that experience, we knew the best, the next best thing was to develop affordable housing for people so they would um, be able to stay in the city. You have a diverse community um, here on Beacon Hill. The jobs are in, you know, are in the downtown core. Mm -hmm. You know, we also felt that we were impacting, you know, the car emissions, the fact that our people live in South County and you know yeah, why are the freeways all clogged up because people can't afford to live in the city but they work here so those were you know the things that inspired us to do the housing and I think I mean as you see from the housing all the beautiful art there was always um, a commitment what came out of the community planning process also was how to honor the four amigos mm -hmm. and so what evolved out of honoring the four amigos was to create beautiful multiracial art so we put a team of multiracial artists together uh, we ended up hiring two latino artists out of um, arizona because this was going to be a public this is a public building if you will um, with all the art and the artists that had bid on it didn't have uh, public art experience in the same way that these two people that we hired from Arizona and uh, what was interesting is that we didn't have Latinos apply but I think it's because of the public art experience mm -hmm. so I hired these two Latinos and then okay we said okay 
we have Latinos on the project. Where's where's the other races mm-hmm. and where's the women on this project? So that's when we put the multiracial team together. We said we've got to bring in others, and so we brought in Al Doggett, Cecilia Alvarez, and I'm my mind is slipping on on the representatives from uh, the Asian and the Native American, and then of course Cecilia was the woman in the project, and so. We could have merrily gone along and said, okay, well, these are the artists that built and not raised the situation that there wasn't. There wasn't a multiracial team Mm -hmm. that was going to put together this. And so I guess the point that I want to make there is that one must be deliberate. If if you have that as your goal or your mission, multiracial unity, then you've got to be deliberate about it and make sure that it happens. So how did you get, so you talked about how some market rate developers approached you. Who was your developer and how did you get the money, A, to buy the building from the city and the acreage and then to build the housing? Well, going back to um, 19, in 1997, we were forced to purchase the building because of people who were trying to... right. Buy it from under us. Did you have to do a capital campaign? Or no, how? we actually, um, you know, El Centro has always had relationships with people from different walks of life, and that obviously includes politicians. Mm-hmm. And so, good relationships with our our senator Patty Murray at the time. Uh, petitioned the state. Um, I think the city gave us a little bit of money. So we bought the El Centro building and the three acres of land that it sits on for $1,080,000. Okay. That's what we bought it for. Plaza Maestas sits on one acre of land. That land today is worth $5 million. Just the land, one acre of it. And we bought it for $1,080,000. So never did realize we were going to have such a great... (laughs) Valuable. Yeah, yeah, investment in, in that way. So the land was ours, no debt. And I think what's what's significant to know about us being able to build the housing is that you know, it must be 25 years now that I begin ago that I began talking to the staff and saying, we have got to get ourselves organized. We have to make sure that we have clean audits, that mm-hmm. our technology is in place, you know, state of the art, that we're producing our reports, getting our billings, you know, we're not, um, that we don't carry debt because our time is coming. And what I referred to was the fact that the Latino community was growing in this country and the demographics uh, would be changing and we needed to be ready for whatever opportunities came our way because of that. And so we worked very, very hard to make sure that our infrastructure was in place we were ready. Yeah. to be ready. Mm-hmm. And so that opportunity was when the decision was made to have a have Beacon Hill be a stop for the light rail station. So with all, all that being said, we yes. are the developers. We are considered the developers okay. of the project. And because it's the property that, you know, we own and the development also. What we did, so people also came to us who wanted to help us develop the property, but they wanted to own a piece of the action. Mm -hmm. And we said, no, we are not giving up 
something that we have fought so hard to let somebody else own a piece of it just to come in because they're bringing in assets to help us do the deal? No, we're we, that's not going to work for us. And so we ended up hiring um, Beacon Development to be consultants okay. on the project that would um, you know work with us side by side all the way through. And they were not asking to own a piece of the project. Beacon Development does a really good job. They know the work and and housing development, especially when you have a mixed use component to it, where you have all the pieces like El Centro does with the childcare, the retail, the offices, it gets very complicated. Mm -hmm. They did all the proposal writing for us, you know, helped us organize the community meetings and saying, okay, you, these are ones that happen. This is what, you know, let's talk about what the agenda should be helped in all those parts of it and helping negotiate with the funders, um, you know, helped with the process of picking an architect, who your uh, construction contractor is going to be. And one important thing that we talked to a lot of our union friends about, like, how can we get our people, our multiracial community hired on this, these, this job. Right. And one of the things that they talked about, and, and you know, you hear, you hear the concept, and it's local hire. But what happens when people think about local hire, and this happened on the, on the Yesler Terrace project, where you think, oh, I'm, okay, my local hire is going to be the central area. Mm-hmm. But where are African Americans who need jobs right now? They're in South County. Right. And so if I if we set local hire here for Beacon Hill, there wouldn't be a lot of Latinos to hire. And so what our union friends suggested is that you need to amplify your definition of what local hire is and say King County is your neighborhood. Okay. Because that's where, you know, your people live. And that allowed us then to have a diverse, you know, diversity with the contractor. And of course, having those discussions and negotiating with your contractor that you want local hire. And so that's why we were able to have a mix of people of color and women um, on the project, which I feel is extremely important. And how long did it take to build and from start of construction to end? It only took about a total of... Um, 18 months. Okay. Yeah. So very quick, these projects can happen. Well, and what you were talking about with the public art, it really does feel like a place that belongs to the community, even though it's residence for, you know, small number of people. It feels like a place that belongs to everyone when you walk through and look at the art. My kids love kind of running around in there and <laughs> coming up for the block party. and That's great. That, so... You know what, I mean, I'm glad you're bringing that point up, you know, where it feels like it's a place for everyone. And when we did our um, zoning change, yet we had to go to city council because it was neighborhood residential. Then we were uh, proposing neighborhood commercial at 65 feet. Right. Not one person in the neighborhood spoke against the project. Not one person. And we know that's unheard of. Yesterday I was just caught a glimpse uh, of the news as I was uh, just coming into my house and clicked the TV on right away. I heard that 
there were neighbors in Magnolia who were protesting about the homeless housing that's going to be developed there in the neighborhood. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what other development could happen there, but the development that happened at El Centro de la Raza, the reason that we didn't have one person speak in opposition to the project is that we had over 30 meetings with the neighbors mm -hmm. to involve them in you know, every single process from their ideas to the design element and so forth. So the neighbors didn't see this just as an affordable house, low-income housing place. They saw it as a place for themselves mm -hmm. also. They could see themselves there, if you will. And that meant, you know, I can have my kids go to the child, um, the child development center. I can come out and hang out in the plaza and watch an evening movie, mm -hmm. come to concerts here, come to a rally, come and buy food within within the plaza open space area so they saw this as a place for themselves also that An led yeah. to this amazing support that not one person in the neighborhood spoke in opposition mm -hmm. to the project the city council couldn't couldn't believe it you know they called it a love-in because <laughs> there were so many people speaking in favor of the project and again not knowing what's going to happen in magnolia and is there an opportunity to create other pieces that could also benefit the broader community? But we, you know, with all due humility, think this is how projects should be built mm -hmm. so that there is something in it for everyone, if you will. And it also builds unity uh, among different people, you know, the homeowners and the people in the low income housing can be mixing and sharing coffee at the coffee shop Absol downstairs and absolutely i mean if you look at the you know one one part of the development is a multi-purpose room that we built that is called the centilia cultural center last year we had over 200 events there and so is the purpose so that's not the main purpose of why we built it yes the community wanted a community center where events could be held but what what can, what has come out of that? What was our objective also of, of wanting that? That it was going to be an opportunity for, for people from all walks of life to come to El Centro de la Raza mm -hmm. and get to know us, be in, be in a neighborhood, if you will, where there's Chicanos and people of color. And just bringing people together in that way begins to develop relationships, a sense of respect, Oh yeah, you know, I I I had my event at that that Chicano place or that mm -hmm. that Latino place, and it just there's just a certain conscious and an evolution of people beginning to look at the world different, and their their interactions with people of color. I'm just so inspired by what you guys have done, and I would love to see more of it. We just need this all over the city. Well, one of the things that I I'm glad <clears throat> you're you're making that point again too is that as a result of the development. Communities are coming to us and asking us, how did you do this? Mm -hmm. Church groups are coming to us. Uh, church groups of color are coming to us, asking people with land and people with land, um, but who don't necessarily have the capacity that's needed in a project. Right. And like I said, it took us, we were like 
organizing 25 years ago to get everything in Ready. place mm -hmm. and saving every penny that we didn't have to spend to have in a fund. So before we built housing there in Sound Transit was building the transit station, they utilized our land as a staging area. And so we negotiated good payment mm -hmm. for that. And every penny of that went into the bank for future development because we knew then that we were going to develop. We didn't know what exactly, but having, and I'll tell you what it was, having a million dollars in a savings account says a whole lot yeah. about an organization and you become a good risk. So my concern, and I'm beginning to talk about it in different places, city council, I'm going to talk about it at a forum that I'm going to be at, uh, at Seattle University, first of February, is that that we need to work with community-based organizations and churches, associations who have land and who have a desire to develop affordable housing. But that means working with them on developing their capacity. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at, you know, setting aside funds, if you will, helping them, you know, step by step, what structures do you put in place the reality is that the if that if you are not seen as a solid organization that is going to last for the next 15 years while they have their money invested in it, they're not going to take the risk. Right. And so we believe that the city of Seattle should create a fund, should um, work with people to develop their capacity and not rule them out, not rule them out because they don't have what it takes at this point to develop a project. Why create affordable housing? One is that there's a need, obviously the need, but what does it do concretely for a community, a community-based organization that is connected to its community do? One, it helps alleviate poverty, but it also gives a concrete capital asset that can help sustain the organization. Right. And that's crucial. 